Welcome to Salem Chapel. If you're new with us, my name's Johnny Pereira. Those of you watching us online, so great to have you here this morning as well. Uh, man, what a great song. That is one of my all-time favorite songs. I said this to the 9 a.m. I was driving to church this morning. I was all by myself, and I had the volume cranked up to 25 and with the windows up. And I'm sure uh, everyone on Robin Hood Road that was choosing to run that morning heard it which was fine with me, but that is one of my all-time favorite songs. Such an amazing song. Uh, it's all Hail King Jesus by Jeremy Riddle. If you want to uh, have download that or whatever you listen to, man, such an amazing, amazing song. And uh, let me just mention a couple of things before we get into God's Word today. Uh, the first is uh, our Christmas Eve services. So uh, 4 and 5.30 um, there is no child care for that, but I w- don't want that to be a, ter- a deterrent for you because it's going to be a special service. It's going to be video driven. Um, it's going to be a special, special thing. Our staff has put in a lot of work for this. It'll mimic exactly, uh, as far as protocols go and safety go, exactly what we do on Sunday morning. So four, the 4 p.m. service will be mass for the entirety of the service, including the singing in the auditorium, and uh, the 5.30 will be, obviously it's not the Wild West as we sang, but we have you social distance in here, and so uh, you won't need to wear your mask when you're in the auditorium. So um, we're, we've created an environment that hopefully is all things to all men, so that we might save some. And uh, so I hope that you'll make it a point to be here for Christmas Eve. You will not want to miss it, and your kids will love it too. The other thing I want to make mention of is... Um, we mentioned this last week, we put out this letter highlighting all the things that the Lord has done in 2020, and God has done so much in, in spite of an unprecedented year, as we all can acknowledge. And so I encourage you, if you haven't grabbed one of these, you can grab it at the Welcome Center that's right under the TVs in the lobby, whether you're new to our church or not. We want this to be in your hands. We've sent it out as well to you by mail and email. If you didn't get it, then we encourage you um, to take it there. And then on the back, we just have a need of what we're asking the Lord to provide through his people. Uh, we have a year and goal of $25,000. That will allow us to enter 2021 in the black. This has been a hard financial year for everyone, and the church is not removed from that. That will allow us um, to cover our expenses for this year. We encourage you to give above and beyond your regular giving. And if everyone commits to doing that, 100% participation, we know that the Lord will do that. That will allow us to be able to, to really build out and implement the things that we have been working hard at this year, which is putting discipleship tools in your hand. We're excited about 2021 and rolling out all the things that we've been doing in 2020 behind the scenes, as well as uh, Restore, which is, the, which is the ministry and how we're going to care for one another in the church, as well as uh, partnering with other churches to create a training center for planters and pastors that the Church of Winston-Salem, those that stand on the gospel, uh, that are part of uh, just the uh, group of churches called Christ Together, and really helping train pastors in this triad area, all the way from Greensboro to Winston-Salem, and Lord willing, one day, maybe even up and down the East Coast. So uh, God is, we have been building out so much this year that you haven't seen, but I want to encourage you to grab this because this is a sign for you that God takes what he's entrusted to you and multiplies it, and that we get the privilege to be on mission for him to building out his kingdom and making an eternal investment into the work that he's called us to. So I want to encourage you with that. All right, Judges chapter 19. I want you to turn to Judges chapter 19. We are closing out 
this series that we have been in since the beginning of the fall in September. Some of you are like, yes, I'm so excited we're done with Judges. I'm tired of hearing about the cyclical pattern over and over again. Well, I hope if that's you, even in the midst of maybe your fatigue in that uh, seems like never-ending cycle that we have, we showed a chart at the beginning of our series and how the book of Judges is really laid out like this that we see over and over again to where the people of Israel sin, they do what God has told them not to do, they experience the consequences of that sin, they repent of that sin, and God is faithful to deliver them, but unfortunately they keep on repeating this cycle. And what we've been trying to really drive home every week we've been in this series is that even though we can be frustrated with what we see with the people of Israel, we are no different. We are broken people just like they were. But in spite of the brokenness, in spite of the sin, in spite of the consequences that they encountered, and in spite of our sin, and in spite of our cyclical patterns of sin oftentimes, and in spite of the consequences that we experience, which actually are uh, a sign of God's love that he doesn't allow us to wander too far, that in the midst of that brokenness, we are reminded of God's faithfulness. That we are reminded that in spite of our unfaithfulness, my unfaithfulness, your unfaithfulness, does not dictate God's faithfulness to you and me. And praise God for that. Well, this morning, we're going to come to three chapters that I'm just going to let you know. Like, if you're watching online, um, I never thought I'd have to say this before, but I'm going to say it. If you've got little kids, you may uh, want to scurry them off, or you may want to watch this later, whatever it may be. I'm just giving you a warning, because... Really what we're looking at is pretty much the darkest passage of scripture, I think, in the entire Bible. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I even heard there's wagers in life groups on how, what Johnny is going to say from this passage of scripture. Found that out yesterday, um, so I thought that was kind of humorous. Um, all of the other pastors were also making sure that I was showing up today to teach on this passage of scripture. Um, I had to run Lucas home. <laughs> Uh, between the first and second service, and Aaron got really nervous, like, where's Johnny going? I'm not preaching at the 11. Well, uh, I am excited about what God wants us to see today in spite of this tragic passage of Scripture, because we like to say this at Salem Chapel. If you call this place your home, I want you to finish this sentence for me. When God's word is open, what is open? His mouth is open. And so I know that the Lord's gonna show us what he wants for us in this moment in time, on December 13th, 2020. Here's the title of the message if you're taking notes this morning, The Chaos of Sin. It's gonna hit us in the face today. The depravity that humanity can be brought to. But as we look at this today, what I want us to take away from it is, wow, the chaos that comes into our life when we choose to sin. See, this is the idea that I want us to get today. It's just a very simple sentence, but I want you to understand this because it's a reality. Whether or not you choose to believe it or not doesn't make it less of a reality. It's this, that sin always, say that word, always. Say it one more time, always. Not sometimes, not most of the time, not a few times, no, 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 sin always produces chaos in our lives, always. 
And so what I want to do this morning as we walk through these three chapters, and we're not going to have time this morning to deal with every verse, but, but I'm going to give you a synopsis of, of the content of this. And I encourage you to read it if you haven't already. Most of you probably have. You've been following along in our reading plan if you call this place your home. But I want to give you three reasons why that's a reality. Three reasons why sin always brings chaos into our lives. Because here's what I know, and here's what's been true of me at times, is I know that that's a reality, but I can get caught up thinking it's a reality for you, but it's not a reality for me. Like, I'm above that. Like, does sin bring chaos into your life? Oh, yeah, man, I can point it out real easy, too, if you want me to. But not for my life. No, no, I'm the exception. I'm the loophole. And friend, what I want you to understand is God really has shown me this week and looking at this passage of scripture is, man, may I never forget, may I never be deceived into thinking that when I choose to sin that I will not experience chaos in my life because of it. So can I encourage you to pray this as before we get into this passage of scripture, just pray this. Lord, would you show me where there's unconfessed sin in my life And would, be, would I be obedient to confess it, to turn from it, and to put the things in place so that I can experience change? Pray that with me as I pray out loud. Lord, we're here today to hear from you. God, I thank you. Oh, what a reminder today in song that you are our King Jesus. Lord, I need that reminder today. We need that reminder today. May we not be people that live as if we have no king doing what's right in our own eyes. May we see that that only produces chaos. And may we be willing to say, Lord, if I have unconfessed sin in my life, would you show it to me? Would you convict me of it? May I confess and repent of it? And may I put things in place so that I can experience change through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's jump into verse one of chapter 19. I'm gonna read through just the first 10 verses, and then we'll jump off from there. It says, in those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. So really what we see is very similar to what we saw last week in chapter 17 and 18. You have another Levite. He's wandered away from his calling, much like Jonathan did in, in chapter 17 and 18. He's unemployed. Uh, he's in the same area as Jonathan was in the hill country of Ephraim. Look what, what, look what this Levite does. He took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now here's what's interesting in that phrase. There's no talk of love here. None. And here's the question I had when I first read this passage of Scripture like a year ago, and maybe you had the same question. Why did he take her as a concubine and not his wife? He didn't have a wife, as far as we know. Not to mention that a concubine, this system set up to where if someone couldn't, if someone uh, was married to a wife and she was barren and she couldn't have kids, then custom would say, well, you can find another woman, she can be your concubine, uh, and, and she can produce for you children. Uh, let me just say as a side note, during this time of history and even with the children of Israel, unfortunately, women had absolutely no rights. Absolutely none. 
Like, ladies, just say a little thanks to God that you don't live back then. And let me say this, and that's not because God condoned this. Like, if we go back to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see how God intended for a man and a woman to operate. Married to one man, married to one woman, depending on who you were. If you're a man, one wife, wife, one, one husband. You were to operate in partnership together. They were given the responsibility to lead and oversee creation together. That God was showing, no, 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 man is not more important than a woman. A woman is not less than a man. God had set things up the way that they should be. And unfortunately, Israel allowed the culture to allow them to compromise their convictions. And if anyone knew better, it was this Levite. But no, I don't want a wife. I don't want a relationship. I don't want a partner. I want property. I'm going to treat this woman as though she's not even human, basically. And he makes her a concubine. Now, it says in verse 2, And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and they were there some four months. Now, at first blush, you might read that and think unfaithful means that she cheated on him, that she was, she, she was uh, committed immorality against this Levite. But that's not the actual the idea of the word. The idea of the word is that she left him to go back to her father's house. So even though the, it doesn't tell us in this passage of Scripture, obviously she's not going to leave the Levite unless the Levite wasn't treating her the way that she should have been treated. She would have no motivation to leave. After all, women had no rights during this time period, not because God ordained it, but because they allowed the culture to dictate that. And so if you weren't married or you weren't even a concubine of someone, you had no way to provide for yourself. You had no way to protect yourself. You, it was though you basically were wide open season to all the threats that would have been in the world today. So for her to leave that Levite, even as bad as that situation was, showed that she literally felt like she had no choice. So that's kind of the context. Verse 3, then her husband arose, her husband being the Levite, and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. So evidently there's some type of remorse that happened there to where he's like, I, not, I need to go back and get her, but I need to speak kindly to her. And it says, and he had with him his servants and a couple of donkeys, and brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Can we just state the obvious here? I have a daughter. And let me tell you something. If I had found out that some guy wasn't treating her the way that he, she deserved to be treated, I would not be greeting him with joy when he came to my house. Guys, any, any other dads agree with me on that? Yeah, yeah, you should. You better raise your hand. This dad's like, hey, man, great to see you. Where have you been? With joy. Shocking, shocking. And I don't say that in a let's commend the dad because we're gonna see here we should not. Verse four, and his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay and he remained with him three days and they ate and they drank and they spent the night there and on the fourth day they arose early in the morning and he prepared to go and, and we can go on and on in these verses but basically all the way through verse nine, the dad entertains this Levite for four nights. 
And they eat and they drink and they get drunk and they have a great time. And it seems almost like, like the dad and the Levite are best buddies and they're just chatting it up and everything. And you see no mention of the woman whatsoever. After all, why is the concubine there? Because the Levite is a deadbeat. He's not treating her the way that she should be treated. So you would think that the father would be like, okay, he's come to speak kindly to her, so I'm gonna work to provide reconciliation so that that can happen. But as you see, the dad really doesn't care about his daughter. He's more care, he cares more about chumming it up and impressing the Levite. And she's nowhere to be mentioned. Once again, Completely ignored, verse 10. But the man would not spend the night there. He rose up and he departed and he arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. So in other words, he, he finally leaves after pretty much five days of partying. He leaves like, no man, we gotta go. He goes down to Jerusalem. Verses 11 through 21, he gets to Jerusalem. He gets to this area he can't find anywhere to stay, so he's sitting in this courtyard with his concubine with no place to stay, and this, this person shows hospitality to this Levite and his concubine and invites, him to, invites them to stay in his house, which was a kind gesture, and we'll see what happens here in a moment, but I want to give you the first reason why sin always brings chaos into your life and mine from verses 1 through 21, here it is. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go. Always. Let me just say, every one of these reasons are going to be 100% statements. Why? Because sin always brings chaos into your life. You can choose not to believe that, but it doesn't change that reality. I can choose to be deceived and not believing that, but that doesn't change my reality. At some point in my life, I will come to believe that statement. Why? Because sin always takes us further than we want to go. Here's why I say that. Because let's think about sin for a second. Sin is born inside of my heart. Like when I choose to sin, it doesn't start by me saying, you know what, today I'm going to do something really wrong to you. It starts with me sinning in what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm perceiving. It always starts with me before it ever manifests itself into wrong actions towards others. Here's why I say that. Think about how this started. The Levite abandons his calling that God has given him to minister on behalf of Israel. So he leaves. Why does he leave? Well, he leaves also because of the sin of Israel, because Israel was responsible to give of their resources to provide for the Levites because they didn't have land given to them by God. And when Israel didn't do that, then the Levites were faced with a situation, okay, do I trust the Lord for his provision or I just try to make it out on my own? And unfortunately, this Levite chose, I'm gonna choose pragmatism over conviction and I'm just gonna kind of do what I wanna do now. And here's what we need to understand about sin. Sin always starts with this thought, I don't trust that what God says is true. That's where it starts. Remember Genesis 3? I've said this many times. What did, what did the serpent say to Eve? Did God actually say? 
That's been a lie he's been selling for thousands of years. And so for this Levite, even though we're not told of all the ramifications that led to him abandoning his post, his calling, here's what we do know. At some point, that Levite began to distrust that God would provide for him. And because circumstances caused him to, uh, caused uh, his trust in the Lord to erode, then that, then the next step is, what you do in that situation, is I begin to trust that God isn't gonna, God is not trustworthy. Because if he didn't provide me with what I think that he's supposed to, then I jump to God's not trustworthy, which then leads to what? The only person I can trust is who? Myself. Which goes to what we see in Judges, what we saw in chapter 17. Israel believed they had no king, they had no king in Israel, and they did what? They did what was right in their own eyes. We're gonna do what we wanna do. And we're gonna trust that I know what to do better than God knows what to do. And that's what you see the Levite doing here. He leaves his post, he thinks about himself, and that first decision to sinfully distrust and walk away from his post, you know what it else that leads next to in his soul? I'm gonna get what I deserve. God, I've tried to do your thing, now I'm gonna do what I wanna do. I've tried that. It didn't meet up to my expectations. So I'm gonna do what I wanna do. I'm gonna do what I believe I deserve. So what does he do? How does that manifest himself? He sees a woman and rather than making him, making her his wife, his partner, his equal, what does he do? No, 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 I don't want a wife. I just want some woman to use. I just wanna have her as a piece of property. I just want her to please me. I don't wanna see her as anything more than that. Why? Because I wanna get what I deserve. Sin always takes you further than you wanna go. I would venture to guess that at one point in that Levite's life, he never thought this would even be possible. To disobey God's word, to disobey how relationships should happen with the opposite sex. And now he finds himself having a concubine which as we're about to read is going to lead itself to really the most depraved actions that could ever be thought of. Why? Because sin always takes you further than you wanna go. James 1 verses 14 through 16 is really probably the best passage of scripture that shows just the, the, the way that sin manifests itself. James says this in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Let me be clear on something. Temptation is not a sin. Why do I say that? Because Jesus was tempted in the wilderness when he was there for 40 days. So being tempted is, is not sin. Like me being faced with things that are like, oh man, I kind of want to do that. I've not sinned yet. When does sin happen? Look at verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So when I start thinking and start fantasizing about, man, I really desire this, so then what do I think next? I think about how I can accomplish it, how I can follow through with it. And when I start getting there, I'm really on a dangerous path because then it what? It gives birth to sin. So then I actually sin, and what does sin do eventually? When it is fully grown, brings forth death. Notice it says fully grown. It doesn't say it brings death right away. Listen, anybody that tells you when you sin it's not fun is lying to you. It can be fun. It can be pleasurable for a season. God's word says that. 
But what does James 1.16 say? Man, when it's fully grown, it gives birth to sin. Why? Because it always takes you further than you want to go. Let's see how that takes place. Look at verse 22, and it says, is that they were making their hearts merry. So remember, this is hard to do when you're covering three chapters. But he's now in that person who invited them into their house, into his house. They're there in Jebus in Jerusalem, him and his concubine. So what happens? And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, just speaking about their depravity, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, that's the master of the house, the host, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. So these men that are banging on the door want him to give him the Levite so that they can have relations with this Levite. I mean, evidently in the language there, this old man of the house, this master of the house is shocked, right? But what's worse is what he does as an alternative, and it says, the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man is coming to my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here, are my, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. So if you didn't think that the concubine's dad was a deadbeat, now we've got this master of the house that literally is like, no, 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 this, this, you shouldn't do this. So instead, hey, here's my daughter, can't even imagine. And then, hey, here's this Levite's concubine. Bring them out now. Violate them. Do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. I mean, everything is twisted here. I mean, the man's misunderstanding even as a host. Like, he thinks he's doing a good thing here. I mean, even the words wickedly, vile, vilely, outrageous, and then how he defines good. Like, this isn't good. No, 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 don't, don't do that with the Levi. I got a better alternative. I mean, it's total moral, moral depravity. It's sexism. That they would view women this way. Which as a side note, let me just say this. That when men... Don't stand up for women and protect women and see women as having value and equal and not less them. That is sin. God hates that. And we need to wake up to that reality. And we see the most perverse sense of it in this passage of scripture. Not to mention his responsibility as a father. I mean, this just goes against human nature. Says they wouldn't listen to him. So what they do in the following verses, I don't have time to read it, is they basically take this concubine and and to the point, you know, use her to the point where we're not sure the scriptures aren't clear if she's dead or alive. And the Levite opens up the door in the morning and sees her in this condition. And instead of even comforting her or or ministering to her, he simply says, Hey, get up. And she doesn't answer, so he throws her on his donkey. And then what does he do? He cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends her to the 12 tribes of Israel to create all out hell in the nation of Israel. I mean, you don't get a worse passage of scripture than this. I mean, I've heard heard from people like, John, I can't believe this is even in the Bible. 
Let me just be clear. God's not condoning these actions. But it leads me to reason number two. Even though this is, there's not a more violent passage of Scripture in all the Bible. Here's a second reason why sin always produces chaos. Number two, sin always makes you stay longer than you desired. Oh, it takes you further than you want to go, always. But it always makes you stay longer than you desired. You know why? Because you can't broker with sin in your life. Remember I said a few weeks ago, you can't broker with God? Well, you can't broker with sin. Like, before I choose a sin, I can't necessarily say, hey, God, here's, or, or, or hey, uh, sin, here's what I want to do. Um, I want to do this. I think it'll be fun. And I want to manage the consequences. Like, like, like what can you do, do for me if I do this? I'm not going to do that, but I'll do this. And I want to manage. I want to control the situation. I want to manage the situation. I want to preserve myself for the situation you can't broker with sin. Can't do it. You can't compromise or compartmentalize. I'm sorry, compartmentalize sin into parts of your life. Like if, you're, if your life is a house, and we use that analogy, I can't say, hey, this is my little closet of sin. And every once in a while, I want to walk into that closet, and I want to have fun, and I want to do my own thing, and do what's right in my eyes, but when I close that door, it doesn't infiltrate the rest of my house, doesn't infiltrate into my marriage, doesn't infiltrate into my, into my relationship with my kids, doesn't inf- infiltrate into my relationships at work, doesn't infiltrate into my relationships with other people. Sin doesn't work that way. You can try to keep that monster in that closet all day long, but the reality is, is I've never met anyone and I've never experienced in my life where I can say, well, I have integrity in all these other areas, but in this one place, I don't. No, no, no. When I allow sin to run rampant and I allow it to be unconfessed, it infiltrates every aspect of my life. I don't just rationalize one piece. I rationalize it all. Always makes me stay longer than I desired. And I can't control the consequences that it brings. Here's the only thing that I can choose when it comes to sin, and that's choosing to do it. But I can't choose the consequences. In fact, that's the biggest lie that sin sells, is that you can control the consequences. Think about it in your own life. Not in a way that has you reliving your sin, but just think of the the sorrow in the past where you're like, I mean, I think about unconfessed sin in my life, and, I'm, and, and, and I never look at that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it was worth it. It's worth it. Hurt a little bit, but man, the pleasure was way better than the hurt. No, 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 that's not true of anyone. It's not true of my life. Listen, I've sat down with people. You know what happens? More often than not, this phrase gets uttered. How did I get here? How did this happen? Seems like just last week, man, I was serving the Lord and in his word and praying to him and experiencing growth in my relationship with the Lord. My marriage was in a good place. I was in a good place with my kids. How did I get here? Got there. 
because you got caught up into believing the lie that sin doesn't bring chaos in your life. You got there because you believed that you could manage the consequences, that you could control the situation. And unfortunately, it's often the shrapnel that sin brings is when we finally realize Man, sin made me stay longer than I ever desired. And I say that because I don't believe, as twisted as this Levite was, that he would have ever thought that his decision to leave his post in serving the Lord, and even his decision to want to make this woman his concubine, would lead to a series of decisions that would find him in a place to where he'd be okay for her to be raped, and then to actually kill her and cut her up and send her to different tribes and only be concerned about my pride. Nobody makes that decision one day and says, I think this would be a good idea. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Johnny, I would never, I mean, I can't even fathom doing something like that. And most likely you wouldn't. I pray that you wouldn't. But at the same time, I've never met someone in jail who was convicted of murder that ever thought he or she would do it either. And though we may never find ourselves in that place and brought to that level of depravity, wonder how many of us are slowly killing the things that are good in our life, the things that God has given us because we're believing that we can manage sin. And though we're not doing something so heinous as cutting up a person, man, we're cutting slowly the good, the best that God wants us to experience because we're doing what's right in our own eyes. We're living as if we have no king. Let's look at the third thing. It's found in chapters 20 and 21. Here's the third reason why sin always brings chaos into our life. We don't have time to read chapters 20 and 21. I'll give you a synopsis of it, but here's the third reason. Sin always costs you more than you want to pay. Always. Always. Say that word with me. Always. You know, unfortunately, we find ourselves in chapter 20 and 21, you know, these 12 tribes get this just unfathomable uh, package, for lack of a better word, and 400,000 men of all the tribes of Israel except for Benjamin gather together because they are just outraged at this act of what happened And the danger in that and the opportunity that the Levite sees in that is he sees it as an opportunity to have a tremendous audience to manipulate those 400,000 men into sharing a story that is not true that can actually benefit him and have him get revenge on the people that destroyed not his partner but his property. Verse 3 of chapter 20 says this, And the people of Israel said, Tell us how this evil happened. And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belonged to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house against me by night. And they meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. 
It didn't happen. It's two dudes. But he's manipulating people to serve his own ends. And basically what happens, verse 11, so all the men of Israel gathered against that city, united as one man. They were going after the tribe of Benjamin. And in the chapter 21, basically what we find is, is Israel goes up against Benjamin and basically almost wipes out this tribe to the point of extinction. Only 600 men are left. All the women, all the children, many of the men have been killed. There's 600 men left in the tribe of Benjamin. And so what they know is, is even though they hate what's been done and they're taking what this Levite has said as, as gospel, they also understand, man, we can't allow this tribe of, of Benjamin to be eliminated Because after all, we're 12 tribes of Israel, not 11. But at the same time, they made a vow when they all gathered together. It says, we're not giving any of our wives to the tribe of Benjamin because of what they thought they orchestrated against this concubine. So instead what they do is they go to Jabesh Gilead and and they take their women to the... Benjamite men, and a massive battle takes place, but there's not enough women for the 600 men. So then they go to Shiloh, and they they take some other women, and they give them to the men. I mean, you see, in this passage of Scripture, if I was ever teaching a message on the importance of valuing women, this would be the passage of Scripture. And you see this just absolute depravity, not just in the Levite, but even in how the men of Israel are treating these women and not even having a choice in the matter, viewing them as property. Basically, you know what we've hit? Rock bottom. You know that cycle, sin, confess, deliverance, repeat, over and over and over again, you know where it's led? Right here. Because sin always costs you more than you want to pay. And sin's price tag at the beginning always seems like a bargain. Well, I know I'm living contrary to what God's word says, but I really haven't experienced any of the consequences for it. I guess this is a bargain. Remember what we said in this series? Don't mistake God's mercy for God's permission. Give you an illustration. So I was 12 years old, and no illustration is going to even be close to what we just read. So just, just give you fair warning. You're like, what is Johnny going to say? But I was 12 years old, and it was a Wednesday, I remember, and it was, uh, I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and uh, we lived on a busy street uh, in the house that we lived in at the time, and it was Wednesday, and at that time, we had what we called Awana on Wednesday night. How many of you have heard of Awana. Okay, so I already know a lot about you guys. You grew up in in, the same circles as I did. So Awana was just a kid's program, and it was on Wednesday nights. And I remember I wanted to play wiffle ball in the front yard so bad, and a friend knocked on the door across the street, and he's like, hey, will you play wiffle ball in the front yard? I wanted to so bad, and I asked my mom, mom, can I go play? And she's like, she didn't want me to go play and get all dirty and all sweaty and everything. Uh, She wanted me to be ready. She didn't want to, you know, go through all of that and... and, um, in doing that, so she told me no. So you know what I did? I did it anyway. So I went outside. I was having a ball playing wiffle ball in the front yard. And I remember, I remember the other kid was up to bat, and we had the bases all lined out. And, uh, and I threw the ball, threw the ball. The kid hit the ball, and he hit it across the street. 
And so he was going towards first and what we made first and then there was a tree that was second and another tree that was third and then we had home base. And I remember I was running across the street, I looked both ways, grabbed the ball, but see he was rounding third and after all, what's more important than looking across both sides of the street? Winning! So I took the ball and I did it across the street and I got hit by a Volkswagen, yellow, pale yellow Volkswagen Beetle, of which I will never own and will never own. And I remember getting up, and the thing, supposedly, the police said, they thought by the tread marks that it was going about 30 miles an hour. And I remember I caught the underside of the bumper because I had this massive gash on my elbow. And can you imagine as a parent, now I have kids, like my mom heard this massive thud and these brakes squealing. I remember getting up and this woman being hysterical as any person would who that has happened to. I swear, I joke around, I'm like, man, when I get to heaven, God's gonna show me this video of this guardian angel holding the hood of a Volkswagen Beetle because the laws of physics say that should have been the end of me. But I remember getting up, and here's why I'm telling this story. I remember getting up, and I don't remember, I remember crying, I remember holding my elbow, but I don't remember saying anything other than just crying, saying I'm sorry. Like just being hit like this happened to me because I disobeyed. Now here's where the illustration falls apart. My mom did not know that that would happen. But here's what I know. If my mom would have said, and she did know what it would happen, and would have said, Johnny, here's why I don't want you to go out on Wednesday afternoon to go play wiffle ball in the front yard, because you're going to get hit by a car, I'd be like, it's good reason. It's all I needed to hear. Gotcha, mom. Good to stay inside. What did I say? We can't broker with sin. And even though I don't think about that often, every once in a while that moment will come into my mind. Listen, I can't cross the street without looking like six times still. It's a simple illustration of what we've been talking about. That sin always costs us more than we want to pay. So how does this relate to Christmas? (laughs) right right Merry Christmas let's all go home here's why because what I see in this passage of scripture as dark as it is as violent as it is as wicked as it is it brings me to a place to think about my own life it's interesting that when we think about the Christmas passages that when we understand the capacity that our lives have to choose our own way and not God's and the sin that we are capable of, it makes what Christ did at Christmas so much more special. In fact, in Micah 5, 2, it says this, but you, this is a prophecy of the Messiah coming. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrata. I think it's interesting he mentions Bethlehem. Where did a lot of this dysfunction and chaos take place? Where was this concubine from? Bethlehem. Where is this area of all this chaos? 
Bethlehem, around the Bethlehem area. But now the Lord says, no, no, out of you, Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Benjamin was the smallest tribe. Benjamin allowed in this story for this to take place. From you shall come forth. For one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. You know, in Luke 2, verses 8 through 11, that passage that we know so well, and the sky opens up and light shines. And the angels say to the shepherds, oh, no, no, don't fear, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all people. Here's the amazing thing about the faithfulness of God and what we're reminded in special ways during this time of year, though we should remember it all the time, is here's what I had to take to God. Here's what I had. I had my sin. Although it isn't as wicked as what we experience in this passage of Scripture, it was still wicked. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of my sin are death. That's what I deserve. That's what I've earned. That's what the people of Israel earned. The chapter, this book ends with the phrase, they did what was right in their own eyes. And every one of us come to God with this box full of sin. But you know what Jesus came to do? He came with his gift because Romans 6.23 says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What the Lord said in his faithfulness is I'm sending my son, second person of the Godhead, to put on human flesh to intersect into that sinful world that you created. And I am coming to offer my gift of life to exchange for your sinfulness, to give you a life that you don't deserve, to give you a life that you didn't earn, to give you a life that would never have been an equal trade. 1 John 4, 10 says, in this is love, that God first loved us. He sent his son to be a propitiation, a payment for our sins. See, the why Judges ends in a hopeless way, in a sad way, in a tragic way. Aren't you glad that God's story doesn't end there? Aren't you glad that God didn't leave you in your sin? when you thought that you could bargain with it, when you thought that you could play with it, when I thought that I could manage the consequences of it, no, 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 no. In spite of my sin, Romans 5, 8, that's when God loved me. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I will be saved. No questions asked. It's just me calling out to the Lord and saying, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I'm not gonna trust in what I think is right in my own eyes. I'm gonna believe that you are my savior and I'm putting my trust in you. I'm accepting that gift, that glorious exchange that is beyond all human understanding. Listen to me, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're living in unconfessed sin, Hear even us talking about it today as an act of God's mercy. He's calling to you. He's saying, sin always brings chaos into your life. It's always going to make you stay longer than you want to stay. It's always going to cost you more than you want to pay. It's always going to take you further than you want to go. But I'm here. You never can go too far from the long arm of God's grace.
And as we go into this Christmas season and we close out the book of Judges, may we not just focus on our brokenness. If that's all you're focused on, you've missed the point. But in the midst of our brokenness, may we rejoice that we have a faithful God whose love is greater than your sin and mine. That when Jesus died on the cross for all humanity, he died for such a heinous thing as what we just read. We have every reason to celebrate. We have every motivation to confess and repent. 1 John 4, 9, if I confess my sin, he's faithful and he is just to forgive me of all unrighteousness. See, sin always brings chaos, but the Lord also gave a 100% statement. I forgive all unrighteousness. Let me encourage you as the band comes out and we sing this last song, that if you've got unconfessed sin in your life, that just in the, just in, in the quietness of where you are as they sing, just call to the Lord, ask forgiveness, repent of it. And this week say, okay, this is what I've been involved in. What steps are necessary for me to set up barriers and accountability so that I can experience change through the power of the Holy Spirit. And let's rest in the reality that we serve a way maker. Amen? Lord, we're here today to celebrate you, to remind ourselves that you are greater than any sin that we may get caught up in. God, may we not be deceived that sin doesn't bring chaos. And when we come to that reality, may we look to the one who provides salvation, forgiveness, and restoration. Lord, that's the story of Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us this morning?